We saved the best for last. This week's episode, our guest is the incredible David Lansfield. David is a UK-based C-suite catalyst, strategist, and coach. He's worked with more than 40 CEOs and hundreds of executives on strategy, transformation, leadership, and culture, working in more than 20 countries. He's a guest lecturer at the London Business School and writes for the Harvard Business Review. He is also contributing editor at Strategy and Business. He hosts a podcast for strategic leaders called Lancefield on the Line, which is how Mo and David met. This conversation starts off talking about deep work and how to use it effectively, and then it winds its way to culture shifting and what David sees as the transformation leadership can do in systems. There are at least three mini master classes in this episode, so it's a must listen. Also, we must apologize to David. We sent out the season finale to season two a little too early. We missed putting out this incredible conversation, a mistake on our part, and we're so glad that David brought it to our attention so that we can make it right. Thanks, David. On to the show. Imagine if work was actually good for people. Not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. All right. Welcome, David Lansfield. So excited to have you on the podcast. Wonderful to be here, Mo. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for taking the time out. I knew after I spoke with you on your podcast that if I ever had a podcast, I wanted to have you on it. And so here we are. And to our listeners, you've heard David's bio in the introduction to the podcast. So you know all about him officially, but we're hoping to get a little bit more down and dirty with the amazing work you do in the world. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Me too. And you're talking to us today from outside of London, right? Yes. Yeah. Hertfordshire in London. So close enough to be in the city, but close enough to greenery. Excellent. So David, I want to start with just having you explain to our audience the work you do as if I'm maybe a second grader and you're trying to explain the work you do. Because us consultants and coaches, it's hard sometimes to explain what we do. At least I find it challenging. So I'd love to have you tell us a little bit about how do you describe the work that you do right now? Usually my parents and family have asked that question. I think I've failed for the last nearly 49 years of my life, (laughs) but I will try. I work for the bosses, the leaders of companies, and I help them grow their organizations and help them develop their people. That's in a nutshell what I try and do. And I guess what I try and bring is some ideas, some challenges, some structure, and some energy and some positivity as I do that. And are there a certain size of company or sector that you really like to work with the most? I like working with companies that are trying to do some amazing, incredible things. So if they're teetering on, doing pretty well, frankly, they shouldn't really need somebody like me. But mm. if they're really in, either in trouble or they're looking to grow or trans- genuinely transform themselves in terms of a new identity, brand, positioning in the market, that's exciting. I have a background in media and technology, and I love that, particularly in TV. But it's more the type of organization and also the type of person I work with. I want to work with people who are, as I say, striving to do great things, and they're also up for relearning some things as well. Mm. Not a big fan of arrogance, not a big fan of people who think they're know-it-alls, but I want to work with people who are very demanding because I want to help them learn and learn myself along the way. I guess they tend to be, if I have to answer your direct question, they tend to be bigger organizations, but actually, and that's what my career today has been around, but actually I've really enjoyed over the last few years working with scale-up organization, a fast growth, smaller organization that perhaps haven't had the leadership mindsets and structures in place as they've gone from startup to scale up. 
That is a fun space. I like, I'm enjoying my clients that are in that space as well. There's a lot of possibility and a lot of openness often, because at least speaking for myself, in many cases, they're younger than I am. <laughs> so they're, they don't have as many gray hairs, perhaps. Yeah, me too. I mean, they, it's keeping up with them at times because the pace is fast and sometimes too fast. So it's trying to get the balance of being close enough into their cultural norms and being supportive of their endeavor, getting what they're trying to do. Because these are genuinely purpose-led people, I find, even more so than perhaps some of the big corporates. At the mm -hmm. same time, knowing when to stop, pause, reflect, tap into your wisdom as opposed to just go. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is hard for all of us, right? Being able to take the time to think, especially if you are in a scaling mode, to be able to pause long enough to say, wait a second, is this actually where we want to be going? Is this how we want to be doing it? I hear, I'm sure you hear this from your CEOs and your leaders. Often one of the biggest complaints I hear from my clients is that they don't actually have enough time to think. So they're constantly in a battle for creating the spaciousness whereby they can actually even consider the things that I, I hear that all the time and I sense it and see it. I think there's two failings again. One is simple, poor management of themselves. I do one exercise with my clients, which is super simple, which is looking at their schedule. I'm not a scheduling expert, a time management expert, don't profess to be one. But you say, okay, what are you here to do? What are your priorities? And then let's look at where you spend your time, your energy, and your attention. And there's always a mismatch. And yes. I, can you really not tell me you can find half an hour a week to do either reading, reflection, and so on? And every single one can. There's something about better management. The other thing I'd say is, I don't think thinking just happens on your own when you have some time to yourself. Actually, thinking happens in the heat of the moment. And often some of these individuals haven't always got the frameworks, the way to work through big decisions. So that, that's some of my work. Okay, let's put some structure around it. So you've got a tricky issue. Where to focus, where to grow, customer not being happy, how to get financing, whatever the big topic is. It's actually yeah. going through and asking the questions that they need to consider. So actually they're spending more time asking better questions, thinking of the mm -hmm. answers and working with the team, as opposed mm -hmm. to thinking is the thing is that they have to spend all their time projecting or yeah. talking. And yeah. so the thinking actually is in better thinking in the meetings, not just, yeah. oh, I'm going to find an hour on a Friday afternoon to think. So you're really helping them to structure where their time, energy and attention goes in terms of how they're thinking through the complex things that they're working on. Yeah, right. and making sure that when they have those, whether it's a one-to-one, -one, whether it's a team meeting, meeting with investors, you might have half an hour, you might have 15 minutes. What are you trying to achieve? What are the questions? And what's the framework or frameworks you're actually using to think? And often, a lot of the time, you can cut out a lot of wasted effort and avenues you don't need to go down. But often, you have two or three people on different wavelengths, mm. speaking a different language, using lots of buzzwords. So some of the time, I say to people, so what do you actually mean by X or Y? Right. Yes. Does everyone understand it? Mm. No, I'm not sure I do. Get a base level of understanding, language. What que what one question, not five, what one question we're here to answer, and then making sure, as always, everyone has a chance to contribute in the way they want. And often, even in a meeting of, say, five people, it'll often be two or three that really dominate. Yes, absolutely. That managing of the airtime. And I'm struck as you're talking, I was thinking about my own experience. I was noticing it this weekend because I've been working on edits for Brave Space Workplace, which I'm reissuing in a second edition. There's been so much good research that's come out of COVID about the future of work, right? So I'm really wanting to get some of that research in there. So I was in a writing mindset. I have been for weeks now, and it, I find it rather exhausting. But I really like and appreciated the work of Cal Newport. He wrote Deep Work, which you're probably mm -hmm. familiar with. And I've, But I've noticed that for me, I take it to, a, to an extreme. Cal Newport talks about how you have to enter the deep thinking work, and you have to give yourself time. He suggests no less than two hours, and then you have to exit. The deep work, the really, the work that's, that takes like energy where you're on fire, but also maybe confused. And I was in that space. <laughs> what I noticed is that I do these, I have this whole ritualistic thing that I do to get into the deep work. And sometimes it takes longer than the actual deep work. You know, I'm setting up my desktop or like this weekend, my, one of my strategies is I'll go to a busy coffee shop and I'll mm. put on a certain soundtrack of music into my Airbus. I have my laptop that I'm entering, but I noticed that this sequence was taking 
longer. I was, of course, avoiding it. I was like, I've been getting, settling into the mode, getting the documents up, looking at where the research is I'm pulling from. And then I was like, okay, that's been 30 minutes. Like you actually need to get on in there and do the thinking. But how, where do you find you do your best thinking? How, what are the conditions around which you are the most able to really think about the issues that you're working on in the business? When I'm most relaxed. Mm. So yes, there are moments when I will sit down and say, I must do, write an article. I had it earlier today, writing an article for Harvard Business Review, finalizing it. That's part of the process where I was finalizing it and I knew what I needed to do. It's relatively straightforward to do that work. When it's at the earlier stage of the process, if I put myself under pressure implicitly, I've got two hours to do this. I must finish this. Very goals-orientated, focused. I find that unhelpful when I'm trying to do hard thinking, creative work, i.e. when I've got a problem to solve, when I'm thinking about a client question I need to talk about the next day. So I know I I need a soft goal, as it were. Mm. I know I need to get to, but I need to unshackle myself Mm. from all the I must do this or a, a, a target or a pressure or the inner, the noise in your head where you think, right, if I don't do this, I'm going to get behind on all the other things. So yeah. it's not just going for a walk and or having a shower and all those things. When that happens, that does happen. But it's just when I'm noodling a topic and I know where I need to get to and I just let myself get into it and actually don't think too much about time. So I know that mm-hmm. I have to finish by a certain time. And when you have family commitments and various other things, there are, there are some hard stops. Mm. But it's just getting that sense of saying, let's just going to go, let's go with this for a while. Yeah. And then trusting yourself and then just cutting out all the noise of it's not working, get on with it, move quicker, <laughs> all those sort of voices that come up. Absolutely. Yeah. The word, I love that. And the word I'm hearing, the word that's coming to mind for me is some spaciousness, some giving yourself yeah. some room to allow the process to come forward. And note to self, I want to have a separate conversation with you about publishing in the Harvard Business Review. You just let that slip. Like I was just writing an article for the Harvard <laughs> Business Review. That's a pretty big deal. Is that work hard? Is that work hard to do? Do you, are you mostly pitching articles to them or are they asking you to write on a certain topic or both? I have an editor and I have an editor I work with, but I pitch an idea and she says, yay or no, nay. Yeah. We have conversations about topics of interest, but it's not a slam dunk. I'm not in the green light category for everyone. I'm not sure there is one, but the hard thing as always is to get, whether it's Harvard Business Review or other great magazines, is getting specific enough that there's an angle that perhaps hasn't been covered. So a lot of people write very general things. I've heard that before. Secondly, it's trying to counter the conventional wisdom and then very importantly, get to actions. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, and yeah. I get sent things occasionally, and what do you think of this? And it's a great idea. What are you asking me to do? Or I've read something similar. Tell me how that's new and different. And the other one is being, why is that relevant right now? Can I just go back to a point, if I may, on, on yeah. deep work? Because you and I were talking about that as us individuals where we can, broadly mm-hmm. speaking, control our own time. I know we have teams and other people who work with us. If you're in a big company, it's hard to do, or even a medium-sized company, and where there are there's governance, there's schedules, there's corporate rhythms and so on. I'm not saying there's, it's impossible to do deep work. Yeah. But I think you're, the need to communicate what you're doing, why you're doing it, and the conditions where you do your best work has to, goes up are notch not being available for say two or three hours because you're reviewing some papers thinking about an issue or a team's all together doing some brainstorming of course it happens all the time but if you're not as responsive to perhaps your colleagues or to your boss or you're not as available or present in an office environment or you're not on some of the calls I think you have to over-index on your communication because in this environment where trust is often quite fragile people can misinterpret that deep work for well, that's a side hustle, or they're not quite as committed as they used to be. Whereas actually, you could be doing some amazing work. So I think you have to get over the trust issues and communicate effectively what you're doing and why. I think it's really powerful. And I do think that it's often in those 
big jobs like that, where you do have a lot of demands on you in a big corporation that make it the hardest to actually think Mm -hmm. deeply about the things that matter. Although I will say I'm noticing right now with so many people working from home, I see it even on my own team where I've got a small team, but two of my team members are parents of young children and getting the time that they need to really think without somebody running block and tackle for them is a challenge. And it's hard. You and I were talking before we started the pod. It's hard to find caregivers as well in today's market. So you've got this sort of real paradox of the flexibility and the interest in remote work, people working from their home, but also if there's anyone else in that home (laughs) that needs your care, it's really challenging to just stop, just like it is in a big company with your team, if they need you or whatever, to protect that that process of what's going into whatever problem you're trying to solve. It is is hard, but I think even whether it's you've got young kids running around, you've got elderly parents you need to look after, whatever the context, I still think there will be times when you can shut yourself away for periods of time. I also think this is my own experience. Because you made a conscious choice about working or working a certain way, I think often you're more focused than perhaps you would have been otherwise. And actually, it's very different from the rest of your life. So I've Mm -hmm. spoken to particularly women who still in many countries still take on the load of childcare, right? That's changing, but it's still the case in most countries. And uh, their productivity and their focus uh, is much greater than many other people for those mm. reasons. Focus, yes. you've got other things to go back for, and hence you, your yield or whatever you want to call it is higher. So I think you can put boundaries around you. I also think that actually it can, you can do some great work. And we need to shift away I'm stretch. I'm moving around here a bit, Mo. But you know, <laughs> no you worries. I love it. Of a sort of input-based, hours-based definition of success. Yes. So yes, any job you have to put the effort in, and there are times you have to really show some presence. You've got to be at FaceTime. I get all that. But actually, if we trust each other enough, and we're clear enough about the ambition for the team or the organisation, what do we want to become? Actually, people can be really creative in finding different paths. To get them. Yes. So uh, we need to shift to more of an outcomes or a results-based organization without losing the cultural norms so it's not ruthless mercenary results. But I think often people say, oh, because you're working part-time or only three hours, you must only achieve X, Y, and Z. Yes. I know people who work part-time three days a week, four days a week, who've delivered far more than people yes. on a full-time basis, but the system doesn't catch up. It's still on a oh, actually, you're on a discount to everyone else because we measure yeah. it on hours or days. Oh, I think that's so important. And I it's one of the places I harbor a lot of hope, actually, for our future of work is that we are able to really start measuring results contribution more than just time and seat. And for me, it also honors the ways in which we work that are very different, whether it's actual neurodivergence in a formal way, or it's just a different style. I'll give you an example. One of the things I've learned about myself, and now it's 60 years old, I can claim it, is I really do work much better on a deadline. And my best work happens right before the deadline. So when I've got to send the book to the publisher, those few weeks are like the hurt locker because I am in there. Now, I might have known that deadline is for an article or a piece of thinking I'm doing for a client. I maybe know for months I have to deliver that thing, but I'm still going to tend to pull it together at the last minute because that is when I do some of my best thinking. Other people are not that way. And so some people might watch me work and they may have anxiety or judgment like, whoa, that just seems like that's not... That does, that's not how I want to do it. I want to have a project plan and go through really carefully, which could work really well for them. But it doesn't work well for me. And I've had to really step into my own voice and my own willingness to claim that for myself, to say, actually, this is what I know about myself. And I think that there's opportunities for everybody to do that. People who might work at different hours and they're working in hybrid or, like you said, dealing with flexibility of schedule. I don't know. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I'm hopeful. Yeah, I agree. What you've talked there is about the power of some simple conversations. Right. So imagine if a team, in a team setting with the beginning of a project or whether you're working day in, day out with people and you say, what do you need to do your best work and how do you do your best work and what can I do to support you? Two or three simple questions. Right. Now, some people will reveal, as you've just done, how you work. Others yeah. may take more time to either recognize consciously what they do 
but the act of actually asking intentionally some questions about how do we work and then very importantly not Mm -hmm. just how do we work individually but how do we coordinate what are the norms in a team so we may be available for example for meetings between these hours I remember a public sector client here in the UK that at the time I looked I thought god that's a bit strange meetings were always between 10 and 4 10 and 4 10 and 4 10 o'clock in the morning 4 o'clock in the afternoon and many people think that's very restrictive and so on but it worked it was actually very inclusive Mm-hmm. And it also meant that other work was done both in that time because it wasn't always full up, but also out time. Whereas many other organizations, it was any time you want, yes. which meant that some people were excluded or also some time wasn't protected. So I think mm-hmm. how to have conversations where you're effectively contracting better with each other, how yes. to do your best work. And it yeah. just requires somebody brave enough at the beginning of a project or perhaps even when you're in a business to say, why don't we just take a moment to say how we can do our best work and support each other? It's a, yeah. This is not some big process. This is not a big workshop. Right. This is just adults talking about how you work. That's yes. what it is. Yeah, I love that. And I think it is about courage. It does require me to claim, but I also think it's about self-awareness. And I think being willing to notice, to even notice, like, what is it? What are the conditions in which I may be doing my best work? Because I might not even notice I'm just going through my days doing what must be done, thinking that is the best way when really there might be a different way if I'm willing and open to look into that. Mm. Now, so I love it. I love what we're talking about here. And I'm curious because you and I do work in adjacent spaces in in different countries, but you, I think I'm remembering correctly that you started your consultancy right before COVID or right as COVID was hitting. Is that right? Was it around yeah. 2020 or yeah. And That's so what yeah, I retired yeah, from PwC in 2020, July, 2020. Yeah. Okay. And how did, how did you decide that was what you wanted to do? And the reason I'm asking is because I think that there are, I think a lot of our listeners who are looking at and interested in even the name of the podcast, Let's Make Work Human. We have a lot of people who are in our community who are working in a company right now, but are, or maybe are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs. And we're certainly seeing a big influx of people leaving traditional environments like you and I have done to start our own consultancy. So I'm curious, what were the factors for you that said, you know what, I'm going to hang up my own shingle. I'm going to leave the big company environment. It took a while. The decision took a while. This is not yeah. something I did over. Had a, had some drinks, went for a walk, had a chat with friends, and just came up with the answer. It took probably a <laughs> few years. I think the yeah. reasons were, look, hey, and I was very, I loved what I did in PwC and strategy, and that's mm-hmm. where I was. I think I had some itches. Dan Cable, a good friend of mine from London Business School, talks about itches, things you want to keep coming, blisters and scratch, things you keep coming back to and thinking, I've always mm-hmm. fancied doing more of. And so I, I was running large projects. I always fancied getting closer to the decision makers. I was already close, but on a one-to-one basis. Hence, I went off and did a coaching qualification to get deeper into that space. So there were some aspects mm-hmm. of that. Thinking, oh, I probably can't do as much of that in my current role than I can. There's limits because I really need to candidly sell large programs of work. So what could be out there? That was one aspect. I think there was an aspect of frustration. I didn't Mm -hmm. dislike my job, but I became a partner when I was 32. I'd been a partner for 14 years. There were roles developing. They were all fine. There was nothing particularly wrong. But it was the same rhythms, the same patterns, the same metrics. And I thought, let's break free and try something else. The third aspect was some flexibility. I have a son who's very disabled and I wanted some flexibility basically to be able to make calls as we've just been talking about on when and how I work. I could largely do that within my previous organization from a client perspective. It was sometimes harder from a colleague perspective as a Mm. male parent who was actively focused on the family. I remember situations where literally you know, a female partner was talking about childcare arrangements that she had to put in place and hence she couldn't make a partner meeting. I said something very similar for different reasons. Hers was absolutely, in my case, there were sort of some grimaces and questions. Now, that was not the primary reason for moving on. The primary reason mm-hmm. was I wanted to try some new things. But those were the three things that sort of mixed up into a cocktail that over time made me think, let's give it a go. Yeah. Brave decision to do that, and that was staring. You said brave. Sorry to interrupt. You said brave. Yeah. That was the yeah. num- That was the word that I think most people said to me at the time. They said that's really brave, and I was curious. And I'm not criticizing you in saying yeah. it, but it was literally everyone was. 
And in most cases, when I reflected and the people I knew, I asked them, I said, what leads you to say brave? It was around, you've got a big role, you've got a big brand behind you, you get paid pretty well. And as long as you don't mess up and you still deliver pretty good work, you've basically got an annuity. That's not the case, by the way. It's a, you can still get fired as a partner, unlike in <laughs> academia. But you've got a run into your retirement. Why would you give that up? That was the bravery. Mm-hmm. My perspective was, yeah, true. But I don't want to end up in 5, 10, 15 years' time dulled mm. or feeling as I could have done something else. Yeah, I love that. And it's interesting. That's interesting because I think I'm think I'm asking myself, I wonder why I said brave. Was it that? Because it's been such a long time. I've been on my own now for coming up into 22 years. And so it's, it is difficult for me to tap back into what it was like to go out on my own. But I don't actually, it did not feel brave to me to do that at that time, nor does it feel necessarily brave every day to be an entrepreneur. What was, what would have been, I think, more braver for me would have been to stay as an internal person for similar reasons to something I heard you say, which was that I, I didn't find myself that engaged in creative, innovative thinking and work. I felt bored. There's not really another way to say it. I felt like I wanted more variety and I, I, my job was good. I liked it. I had some golden handcuffs working for a big technical company in the cellular industry. And I thought that could be a pretty nice place. But on the other hand, for some of the reasons you've mentioned, one was definitely flexibility. My decision to leave corporate America came after the birth of my first son, when I just felt that the hours were untenable to be the kind of parent that I wanted to be. Mm. But I also felt that I wanted a bit more variety, a bit more ability to experiment and to test, which it sounds like was a factor for you. And I really appreciate what you just shared about your son and some of the bias that you might have experienced around the caregiver responsibility. I hear that and I see that certainly here in the States. It's something that we're noticing quite a bit. I've talked about it on the TED stage and my talk about how women encourage healthy masculinity. And I here in the States, one of the phenomenons we've had happen is a lot of bigger companies are now providing paternity leave, for example. And most, if not many men don't take it or they don't take the full amount And I hear from my male clients that they do feel similar to perhaps what you felt, a different way of feeling treated when they do claim their caregiving responsibility, which helps explain why we don't have some of the equity and equality that we need, I think, to make it all work. Until men can be seen as valued, powerful, effective caregivers, we aren't going to have real parity in the workplace around roles, I don't think. Share parental leave is a good first step, but yeah. let's be really clear, it's pretty foundational. It's a minimum. Like on, it's, minimum. it's a bit yeah. like representation is like a, a bare minimum before you even get to anywhere close to inclusion and belonging. I think from my perspective, I came across, I'm talking about a range of organizations now, not just my previous employer, a number of particularly male leaders who would talk about work-life balance, the importance of family values, the importance of inclusion, flexibility, all these concepts. And then you look at their practices and actions mm-hmm. and there's too big a delta there's too big a dissonance between the two some of it unconscious frankly yeah. their words are projecting a future that they've not leaped leapt forward into but when you for example schedule schedule i should say you're an american audience, leadership meetings <laughs> leadership <laughs> meetings very early in the morning late at night over the weekend what signal does that send? For me, it sends two things. They're not as important as they should be. And secondly, you are actually excluding some people who will want to spend time doing other things in their life. Now, to be clear, if you're in a leadership role, you have to be committed. You have to have a certain degree of flexibility. It's probably more than the norm. Until leaders start actually role modeling, yes. at least trying to project more inclusive, more flexible more reasonable <laughs> behaviors yeah. in their own worlds, it will be very hard for other people to trust that their intentions are genuine and yes. have an authenticity to them. Hallelujah. I couldn't agree more. And it affects us across all dimensions of difference in, in my experience. And I think it's, there's a, we're talking in particular about this dimension that has to do with caregiving. There are other areas, but I think that one is a huge one. And I know right now you and your family are juggling care for elders 
and your son who is mm-hmm. has multiple disabilities, as I understand it, and that's a yeah. lot for one family. But so at the same time, and I say this, and I, I say this without a marketing or sales hat on, I feel as I'm doing some of my best work, mm. and I say that slightly uncomfortably. I say that not to say oh, I'm amazing with a big ego, but I, I feel that I'm doing less work than I frankly would like to. I'd like to work more full-time. That's a debate my wife and I have regularly. At the same time, when I'm doing it, I'm all in with, I think, a broader, deeper sense of what really matters for mm. leaders and organizations. I think when you go through personal crises of different shapes and form, it gives you, a candidly, a greater sense of fragility, your own fragility and your own mortality. It means that when you're doing work, I want to do, I, in a way, I treat my assignments as though they might be my last. And I hadn't planned to say that just came out naturally where <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm rushing. It doesn't mean I'm going to suddenly get dramatic, but it means that you, I think you're, you show a greater degree of appreciation for the work you do, the opportunity you have to do that work. And I go all in. And I now, I think, give more of myself than before. I give mm. more of my whole range of skills and I say what I think. That should not be confused with me being overly directive, saying too much, or disclosing everything about my personal life. But I think many individuals, whether they're solo entrepreneurs or corporate leaders, often have lots of filters and barriers in place that means that they, I can't say that, I can't do that. Some of which is the institutional culture they're in. Some of which is just stuff they've built up over time. Yeah. And I think when you go through a transition, as I've done over the last few years and dealt with a number of crises, it doesn't make me into some superhuman, but it does give you a sense of, let's let's do some really good work here. That's my intention. I love it. And yeah, I was thinking when you said that, I was thinking, yeah, it, does, it may not make you superhuman, but it makes you human. And yeah. from a collegial perspective, and certainly I think from a boss to an employee perspective, you have deeper probably of empathy for people that are working with you with similar situations. You also have that beautiful, I'm hearing you name this beautiful sanctified space, which is, hey, and when we're working, we're going to really kick it. We're going to really kick it, which is something that I love. It has always mattered to me as a mother of three, single mother of three for much of my parenting and caring as a carer for my mom who passed coming up on her second year anniversary of her death. And just really being aware that those pieces of my life are central to any meaning that I've had on this earth, way more than a business I've built or a job that I had, or Mm. even the money that I made to support my home. Truly, if this were my last interview, I would not want on my grave, like she worked long hours and she built a nice practice. Come on. I really want to be remembered for the relationships that I have, which of course is We've studied this, <laughs> the Harvard Longitudinal Study and others. These things you just mentioned about your life, I would consider them amplifiers. Some organizations consider them to be limitations. So if you are somebody who's got other commitments, can't give as many hours, can't quite give as much in some cases, I think that's, oh, you therefore you can't do. Whereas in many cases you can actually give, you have richer insights, deeper experience, you can give your yield, I come back to, can be greater. Whether you have these responsibilities or not, I think leaders have an opportunity to really try and explore and understand what each of the people they work with can give. Yes. And actually, in many of the cases, their assumptions will be wrong. Because of these labels, they must do X, Y, and Z. It's get to know them, ask them questions, give them a big challenge, see what they can do. And then if things come up that are not possible, they can't do, at least trust them for them, trust them enough for them to be able to call it out to you rather than you assume it on their behalf. Yes. Yeah. And be open to the possibility of what they will do in those spaces when they are able to be focused and working for you, which is a privilege, I think, when someone signs on to work for you. Now, I want to circle back to that because I do want to talk to you a little bit about your perspective on leadership. But I want to go back to something else that I know is a sweet spot of your practice. And it's something that I'm very curious about because I I follow you very closely on LinkedIn and I love watching and reading your writing and you talk a lot about strategy. This is the article that we should write for Harvard Business Review because I'm really curious about the intersection, of course, with strategy and culture. Culture is what I'm about most of the time, creating 
really conscious and brave cultures. I think it does drive everything. But both of those words, I think, can be overused. They're like teamwork in organizations, right? They roll off people's tongues without really necessarily any meaning about what they are. And I find in my work with culture that people are always a little bit confused about what it really means and what it means to them. And I see that in some of my clients when they start talking about strategy too. But you seem really clear about strategy, what it means, how it works. And so I would love to know what strategy means to you and also what is strategy exactly for those organizations, David, that you see out there right now or that you're working with that are really getting strategy right when it's at its best? What is strategy for us? So for me, strategy is a series of choices that individuals, teams, or organizations can make to address a problem that is stopping them going from here and now to something bigger and better in the future. Mm-hmm. So if you break that down, it's think of an ambition for an organization. We want to be bigger. We want to grow more revenue. We want to have a bigger impact in our society. There's an ambition there. They're looking at where they are now, and they say, okay, what do we need to change? in our organization about whom we serve, how we focus, what we deliver, how we differentiate ourselves if we're in a competitive space, and how we evolve the organization to get us closer to that ambition. So that's my sense of strategy. Mm-hmm. Strategy is yeah. a mindset and a practice more than more than anything. It's having a little bit of a renaissance because it's been closed right. for a long time. It's been reserved for the people at the top, the elitists, mm. the people who have MBAs, the people in the C-suite. Yes. Yeah, actually, or it's been misused or misinterpreted as anything special. Oh, I have mm. a strategic plan, initiative, it's special. Actually, it's about every, I think everyone in an organization could be strategic, which is having mm. the empowerment and the capability to make choices about how to move forward, how to change, and making choices to do that. The link to culture Mm. comes in, and I have written a piece, happy to think about a new one as well. (laughs) We've got to find the right angle. (laughs) Yeah, I've written a piece called Mastering the Connection Between Strategy and Culture and Strategy and Business. If you like, strategy, in order to develop that strategy, you need to understand how the organization works. Yes. The norms, the values, the traits, the behaviors, most of all, because that should guide in a way, how far you can go, how quickly yes. you can go, what the yes. gap is. So, for example, if you have a growth ambition for, a, for an organization and you want to do, you want to enter new markets, if you don't understand the culture of the organization, you might assume that actually people can work cross-culturally or they can change their view on innovation or their practice of innovation very quickly. Whereas actually, if they understood the culture, they'd realize we probably need to do a an acquisition or a partnership of some sort. So strategy people need to, frankly, get off their high horse often and get to know how the culture works. Similarly, I see many people in culture work, if I can be bold, disinterested often in what the strategy is, or at least thinking that if we improve how we work, that's enough. For Mm. me, that's like having a lovely party on the Titanic. Everyone's enjoying themselves. They're getting on well together. And they, oh, there's an iceberg over there. And that iceberg's a disruptive threat. It could be a competitor or an aspect Mm. that's disrupt the organization. So people doing culture work need to think, what does the organization need to become in order for the strategy to be successful? And how do we evolve how we work? The Mm -hmm. two need to come together in those series of conversations. And again, it's about mindset which is how do I connect the two? The one last thing, and I recognize this is a long answer, but is capabilities is a word that's been used in various articles, seminal articles and books, and it's been used and not always understood. Capabilities are activities, processes, things you do in an organization that help you win. And this is where you need culture, you need capabilities, and you need strategy all to work together. For example, Working more inclusively, more harmoniously, working in hybrid situations and so on as part of culture work is good. It's foundational. Mathematicians would probably say it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for success. Mm. Capabilities is, okay, what do we need to excel at in order to affect our strategy? Okay, we need to be great at doing partnerships. We need to be great at customer service. And then those aspects then feed the, and if we do that, we're more likely to achieve our ambition given the choices we've made in our strategy. I love that. My favorite part 
of that whole TED talk that (laughs) (laughs) was that you said that it's having a renaissance and that it needs to come out of the highfalutin MBA strategy that only the elite think about strategy. I love that you said that because I, I think that it is a topic that can often be a bit mind numbing in that way where people think it's big, they think it's complex, they think it's beyond their capability or that it only happens at the top. And I think that that blocks the effectiveness of really being able to and look at what are those moves. And it's, it's often that, just to build on that, a certain group of people do it. They make decisions about the organization and they, and Roger Martin, a greater strategist, strategist than me, would say they then just assume it gets pushed down the organization. Yes, yes. Wrong. Or you mm-hmm. need to focus on buy into that strategy. Of course, you need people to be interested, aware, understand what the strategy is. But the difference is you need to try and you need to encourage people to make choices in their own role. Somebody on the C suite might say to the level below, this is the organizational strategy in your geography, in your product area. That's your responsibility. What are the choices you can make to make the best possible contribution yeah. to the strategy? That is yeah. a different dialogue. And you that goes all the way through. And what it means is people feel much more connected to the organization and the cultural aspects of it because it's, this is my business. I'm, I feel like I'm an owner rather yes. than a doer. Yes, I love that. And I'm struck with something that you're saying that I'm in full agreement about. I feel like I talk about this ad nauseum to my clients, which is that buy-in is not a one-way feed. Buy-in is that, David, you come down on high and you tell me the lay of the land. And then I go, yes, sir. That's not buy-in. Buy-in is when I have a, we have a two-way conversation. You say, Mo, here's the direction we're moving. And then what do you think? How, like you said, what choices are available to you about that? And then I say, you know what? Here's the thing. As soon as I start saying, here's the thing, here's this might work for me. Here's what this might mean for me, et cetera. Now I'm beginning to buy in. Even if the strategy that you've picked or the culture that you're creating isn't my idea, I'm still willing to buy in. I think this is a mistake that a lot of leaders make is that they think that in order to get buy-in, people have to be able to vote or they have to be able to have their idea be implemented. And I'm always saying that is not the case. It doesn't have to be that it's my idea. It's that I need to feel heard for the way that this impacts me or what this means to me, because that's how integration happens. So I just love that. And it's I respectful of the people. It's respectful yes. of the opinions of the people, the contribution they can make. Hey, imagine if the strategy further up the chain might even be better because of the perspective of the person you've just been talking with. So Absolutely. this shift to more open strategy, I mean, there's a great book by Christian Stadler and others called Open Strategy, is not to be confused with open season, open voting, completely democratic. Leadership teams still have to make the calls. But their willingness to ask questions, involve people, share their ideas on how the organization can grow and change, this is where work on culture really comes in. That's the shift. And it's a mindset shift. And it means that leadership teams have to be much better listeners when they have to be much better at framing the problems that you want people to Oh, so you're not saying, oh, please tell me the strategy. People sometimes do that, and that's a very big, broad brainstorming. But they might say, in the markets you're operating in or the customers you're serving, what's the one need that you think we could can fill? What are they really asking for us? Or what's holding us back? The quality of those questions yeah. and then the willingness to actually invite people to share their perspectives, that's what the leadership traits need to be yeah. in the future, yeah. not... I'm going to now get on a stage and tell you what the answer is, and you're then going to do some mindless doing. Which doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'm stuck with what Peter Block taught me years and years ago. That I've always, it's always stuck with me. Peter said that it's all about the question. A well-designed question that is both both ambiguous and personal that gets someone thinking about their strategy or their culture or even their tactics is worth its weight in gold, isn't it? And I think we tend to ask the stupidest questions. We ask yes or no questions. We ask questions about, do you like this? <laughs> do you agree? Yeah, that is not helpful. That's not generating any buy-in. I don't have any skin in the game when I do that. So thank you for that. I love that explanation of strategy. I get it. It makes a ton of sense. And so what are you seeing out there in in the UK, in your clients, some of whom I'm sure are global, that you both find exciting or that you are worried about? And in particular, I'll frame it up this way. If the, if the world of work right now is an ocean 
And I know I'm going off script because I've hardly asked you any of the questions that I wrote, but it's such a great conversation. But if the whole world of work is an ocean and, and it's really stormy out there, which I think it is, what boats are sinking and which boats are floating and why? Mm, I love that. I love that. I'm really excited by people who are relentlessly focusing on customers. When I say that, I, there's part of me that thinks, oh gosh, that's hardly new. Customer centricity, <laughs> customer needs, jobs to be done. But in a world, especially companies who have been very industry focused or very product focused, that's a big shift in mentality to go back and say, let's look at our customers now and the customers we want to serve. What have we got that helps them do that, master that job that needs to be done or the needs they have? How do we collaborate with other organizations to do that? And what that means is, you often have to cross industry boundaries. You have to search yeah. for organizations, attract organizations to work with you. So leaders who have that willingness to shift and pivot, they're focused on pay product to customer and willing to willingness to look outside industry boundaries. I think they're on the ships that are floating and enjoying the waves. Yeah. I think the one and I think the ones that are I come back to outcomes and value. Yes, they've got to be learning. In some ways, that's foundational, though I know there's a lot of interest in learning mindsets. I think that's important. But more than that, you have to learn in order to work out how you create new sources of value. And that could be value to customers, the value to your employees, the investors you serve, because that anchoring often means you can take, you can find shortcut ways to cut through it, as opposed to leaders who are very big on process. We've got to run a great innovation process to deliver a new product or our new R&D process. You need some of it, mm-hmm. but you get to the end of it and you think, okay, so how has that helped our customers or our employees mm-hmm. or our investors make a return or the society, address societal issues that we care about as an organization? So that anchoring around value, I think, mm-hmm. is very important. The leaders that are struggling are often ones that struggle around communication, Mm. I'd be surprised by that. So it's interesting when you work with them and spend time with them and you say, so what do you really mean by this? Or if you had to distill the strategy into a post, write it down on a postcard, or if you only had literally two minutes to talk about your one or two priorities, they can often do it. They're not stupid Mm -hmm. people. But when they get into the machinery they're in, and this is big, small, big or small organizations, scale-ups or traditional, something happens. Mm. it's oh, i must say this to this organization it's like they stop trusting themselves mm. so i'm seeing leaders who have done a lot of work on how could communicate complex concepts in simple ways to different types of stakeholders in very mm. dynamic situations and i think mm. that's a skill that's often been practiced in very set piece arenas quarterly mm. town hall here the investor presentation and they'll still have to do this but this is something where you might have to pivot in a day from a board meeting to a one-on-one and so on people want to hear mm. a consistency of message they want to hear more visualization of ideas they want to have more creativity at the same time they'll want you to get very specific very quickly so i think communication quality of communication I think is absolutely fundamental. And I see some people floating uh, fine and some people sinking. And I say all that, having realized that was a very long answer and say my own communication sometimes need to be more succinct. (laughs) Don't we all, don't we all. I'm struck with the, I'm struck with something you're saying, which is that when I, when you said the word communication, as you described what it was in a little more detail, the word that flashed in front of my eyes a little bit was actually connection. Because I think sometimes when we think of communication, we think of communication as being how I tell, which I do think storytelling matters a great deal. And I love the con- I love what you're saying about that ab- ability to pivot to your different audiences and have that message be received and integrated. And for me, that's a lot about connection. And you started with this idea of really understanding your customers. What is it that's mattering to them? Understanding your employees is something I see with a lot of my clients is that they think they know. This is the hubris, I think, that can happen to us sometimes in leadership. I'm guilty of the same thing. I think I know what my customers both need and want. And so I, when I'm not at my best, I don't ask them and I don't yeah. actually listen. <laughs> 
to them because I think I know. And so me telling them what I think they want isn't going to be helpful. But if I'm willing to really get curious and also tell them where it is I think I can help, then now we're having that connection that can maybe bring us into calmer seas or help us weather the storm. So yes, it's communication, but it's perhaps a very specific piece of that communication. And I'm right with you. I see that as the fall down of so many leaders who are brilliant and are trying to do the right thing and to meet the goals that they have for their boards. And they get all tangled up in not being effective at driving that forward. So do you think that skill and that ability, this goes back to this broader question, is leadership innate or is it learned? So those leaders that you work with that are so good at those connections and communicating to all those stakeholders, are they naturally good at that or have they really practiced? My intuition is innate, but actually when I look at the individuals I worked with and I've done research on this, I think it's more learned. So there will be examples mm-hmm. where at different stages of their childhood, there may be signs and they talk about, I was a leader of a sports team or I did this, I was doing some charity work and so forth. But I can also remember many individuals who did none of that and had mm-hmm. no show, no leadership qualities. And then either an opportunity was presented to them or they had a train, often a change of lifestyle circumstances, a change of interest in their career, something happened, and they stepped up. And so I think it is learned, more learned than innate. I think the learning is quite personal. Hmm. So I know there's often principles and practices around it's on the job or it's developmental and so on. I think you have to, if you like, it's a smorgasbord, if you like, you have to pick and choose what's relevant for you. So I think of the leads I'm working right now, some are very much... They can suck up lots of information and digest mm-hmm. it and then just do it. Others need to be need to see it and feel it and experience it. But I think the I think it's I think it's more learned. I think look, if you've shied away consistently from the spotlight, you find responsibility difficult, you find hard decisions difficult to take and so forth. And that's pretty clear early on in your life, then I think it's hard to learn. So there are some fundamental things, but I think I see many people literally in their 20s, 30s, 40s and beyond step into leadership roles. You think, where did that come from? Yeah, I think I agree with you. And that's a question I get a lot from my clients, especially when I get calls for solving people problems. Because oftentimes the people problems, I'm putting this in air quotes, that people might call me about by that, they actually mean a particular person. (laughs) There's a name associated to the people problem. And often it's a person in their system who is not leading effectively. And there's this story, I think we tell ourselves that if only that person were better or were replaced, that things would be better, which could be true. But by the same token, I find myself always very curious about art. Because what the story I think that those companies sometimes are telling themselves is that leadership is innate and this person doesn't have it. And of course, what I'm always looking at, and I bet you are too, a lot of the time is I'm always examining what in this system is activating the best talents of this leader and what is the system doing that is not activating. Now, it may be that they're not right and that they're not right for that system at that time, or maybe they, as you said, maybe they didn't have or don't have a natural inclination to be in a leadership role, which would suggest a bad fit. But what I see more often, which it sounds like what you're seeing as well, is people who have through life's very grind of the harder things, which gets to some of what researchers like Carol Dweck talk about in her book, Grit, is that through the hard things they've been through, they actually have been formed and adapted on the journey to learning how to do it, how to show up in the way that we call leadership. And they're responsive to that, which I find very exciting because it makes me think that it's an almost infinite pool of good leaders that the world needs, that Mm. almost anyone, if they wanted, could actually rise into effective people leadership if they're willing to dynamically learn. I find that very exciting. Yeah, that's very exciting. That's very exciting. And I think the question in my mind is there are certain aspects that I've called out, a bit like when you're work coaching with people, is are those traits and characteristics there? So for example, are they willing to have a good look at themselves? When you coach people, are they willing to ask some hard questions themselves? Is there a degree of stubbornness and unwillingness to change that they have? 
And I think some of that applies to leaders where I love the idea that there is, a, and I think more than an idea, there's a plentiful supply of people. But do they have the courage? Do they have the grit that you know, Angela Duckworth and others talk about? Mm-hmm. Do they have the willingness to be in the spotlight? Yeah. That's the bit that often isn't talked about. Not just it's talked about that it's lonely, but the reality is you are exposed in yeah. many situations, and you have the board, yeah. you have the exec committee, and so on. But you are making the call, and I think that often dwindles the number of leaders who really get to the top of the organization. Yes, I would agree, and I would say the same is true for entrepreneurship. Yes, in indeed. a lot of ways, people ask me I, when I was in Scotland last year on my sabbatical. I was with one of my closest friends who is just re- had just recently retired. The trip was supposed to be a retri- retirement trip for her from a long career as a nurse practitioner, and we were talking about our respective work and what we did and things. And she she said, like, when you take the sabbatical, you know, when you're working, when you're out for a month, are you how do you handle the fact that do you still have a salary coming in? <laughs> And I said, no, the nature of being a consultant is that when I'm not working, actually, I'm not making any money. Now, the business proceeds. It's not like things are dead in the water, but it's different. And she just looked at me and she said, I could never be an entrepreneur because I ha- I need to have that steady paycheck. And so I, I think that willingness to be brave, that willingness to be learning all the time is something that happens to entrepreneurs as well as people who choose to be in that spotlight. I know I need to let you go, but I have two more questions for you. And the first one relates to what we we're just talking about. Who has inspired you lately? And it doesn't have to be just work. It could be personal. Yeah, it goes back to, I know it's often glib to talk about your children and so on, but I've been in situations where individuals who've been leading events or activities that my son's participated in have had no background in disability or special needs but I've been inspired by their mindset and their willingness to have a go Mm. in this world it's often the case especially if they're working for companies that they worry about process and risk and disclaimers and even in the UK we followed the North American example you have to sign away everything and that mm-hmm. taints their mindset which is oh you can't do x y and z mm-hmm. there's a couple of individuals recently where all the rules regulations and so on would suggest that my son couldn't partake in some activities and uh, even with me acting as his very vocal father professional but pretty strong I hasten to add uh, <laughs> And these individuals stepped forward and said, welcome, let's give it a go. And if there are issues and problems, we'll say and we'll adjust accordingly. But dad, you're here anyway, you know him best. And all it took was for them Mm -hmm. to take a step forward, to welcome with open arms and to think their default, effectively in behavioral science terms, their default being, yes, he can. So that's what's inspired me recently. That makes me... Teary. It's really powerful. Quite rare, candidly. But mm-hmm. when you have what you learn is a parent of any parent of somebody who has special needs or disabilities is when you have those moments, you have to hold tight to them and just remember them because there'll be plenty of other moments where there's real barriers in place. But it gives you that fortitude to, to go again. Yes. And that mindset orientation that those people carry, which I'm sure must lift you as a parent, which is, yes, he can. And we believe. This is my experience, which is not empirically proven. It's not an academic study. I hope my statistics background always kicks in when I make gen- trying to make generalizations. It's often people who've come up against the odds or yeah. come from difficult backgrounds or not had very much. In my personal experience, these are the people who often have developed that type of mindset and that's quite remarkable Mm. and often the people who have a lot or have developed a lot wealth and everything else that comes with it and done very well for themselves sometimes have lost sight that welcome and that opportunity Mm. Mm. not everyone but that's my experience yes and what that means to to someone, to anyone, to your son, to you and to your family. Mm. It also makes me, I love that. I just love that inspiration too, because it makes me realize the power that can happen by anyone. I recently was watching my son who is not, does not have disabilities like yours does, but has had his own challenges, particularly in the mental health arena. And he's been, he's producing an album for children of music. It's called Earthlings. And he asked Mm -hmm. me to record some 
video of the third graders singing with him. And I was watching these kids. They were so cute because they were in the studio and they could hear themselves through the mics and it was just very dynamic for them. And and it was a whole new world. And one of the groups that he had me listen to, he whispered at one point, he said, I may not have this group in the album because they're, they're not, they can't really hold the tune, but I wanted them to have the experience anyway. And I thought, for these kids, that half an hour in that studio making music on a real album was potentially life-changing. And I was super proud of him for seeing that and for seeing what it meant for them and for letting them have that joyous moment. And it Imagine, does take- oh, That's a brilliant moment and credit to yourself for doing it. Imagine when they went in, if he made the call, if they, if they did hear or their parents or others heard their recording, wouldn't that be even better? Oh, and it's going to, and it, they will, I think. He recorded all of them so that some of them, they'll make it, they'll just be subdued, but they'll all be on the album in some way, in that's the photo that's or whatever. That's the point. That's and I think that's just so powerful. And it would be easy. It would have been easy for him as a musician to say, I don't want to have children on the album because it'll sound better for these families of, and the children if it's only professional musicians. And I think deep in his heart, he knew that was not what he wanted because the songs are for everybody to sing. So I just love, thank you for helping me tap back into that story and so tell our audience how they can support your work where should they go what should that. they do how can they find you? yeah i love people who follow engage whether it's on linkedin my podcast lance Food on the line on the articles yes of course it's nice to have appreciation but more so than that i love it when they submit comments say have you thought about that angle so in terms of support sharing their mm. experiences their ideas challenging constructively and to the point i made earlier when you do share more write more say more you put yourself out there so you have to be willing to listen and appreciate so the support is share your experience and i'm willing and i've shown in many occasions particularly over the last few years that i'm willing to change and say i didn't quite get that right let's improve but uh, lots of materials davidlancefield.com is where my site is where you can see lots of and goodies and many free goodies as well I'm grateful for that question, Mo. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. And we'll put all the links in the show notes so that people can find it easily. But I love that suggestion of engage with me, challenge me. And I see you do that so well, at least in your public persona on your articles and stuff. When someone asks a provocative question, you dig in. Oh, David, so great to talk to you. I could keep chatting with you, but I really appreciate the time that you've given me today. Thank you. Thank you. Keep doing the good work you're doing in the world. Likewise, Mo. Thank you for the opportunity. It's great to talk. Wonderful. All right. Excellent. Okay, season two is over for real this time, but that just means that it's time for you to rate and review and pass the podcast on to your friends and leaders. Help us keep the momentum, get it, going into season three. And as always, if you have a guest recommendation for season three, send it over. Our links to connect are in the show notes. Stay brave out there. Bye.